0: Hey guys, thank you for tuning in. You're watching this today because you should be and I want you to hang with me. We are continuing our sermon series. Last week we talked about uh, recovering everything that the enemy has stolen. We talked about David going to Ziklag and he goes into the town uh, and, with his men and the wife and, and the kids are, are gone. Hide your kids, hide your wives, everybody getting snatched up in here, right? So we remembered that he was told by God to go get Everything that he lost, he said. God said, "Pursue it, overtake them, and you will recover all." And so we're going to talk today not just about recovering what the enemy stolen, but this is a different twist. And I think that uh, I think this is going to connect with everybody because if you live on this planet, you have a heartbeat, you have breath in your lungs, and you live long enough to experience a little sliver of life, you're going to experience the pain of losing things, not that the enemy stole, but that you surrendered yourself through faithlessness or through uh, you know, sin of some sort, something that wasn't stolen as much as it was surrendered or forfeited. So what do we do there? How do you deal with the things that you lost that were a direct result of poor choices that you and I made? You know, sometimes if if it's the enemy and I know, like, hey, this was mine, I didn't do anything wrong, I'm serving God, my my heart is right, and somebody took something that belonged to me, there's a there's something that rises up. I want to go get that stuff. But there's a there's a doubt and, and, and kind of a shame that hits us when it's something that we knew we gave up because we were making poor mistakes, or we wasted time, or we wasted our life. Now, this is actually a very hopeful positive message, so I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna drop the depression bomb on everybody today. This is actually one of the brightest pictures of grace we see in all the Bible, and it was actually from this little tiny book in the Old Testament from a little known prophet named Joel, or Joel, however you wanna say it, or Hoel. Um, And this guy is used by God to point to a grace that is almost unbelievable. And I would say unbelievable, but we're called to believe. But a grace that can only be God. And so let's talk about what this looks like. And I want you to have hope because when we have squandered things and especially years, can God restore those years? When those years are long gone, we look at the calendar and we're, we glance back in the rearview mirror of life and we look at all the things that are wasted. Is there any way that those can be restored? And the, the hopeful answer is yes, but it's only God who can restore it. And so here it is. We have this book um, from Joel and this prophet was writing about judgment, past and future, Um, and a promise of restoration, past and future, when it came to Israel. And so he talked about, he references the Exodus, and he references the day of the Lord um, that is going to come, and he talks about Israel's punishment because of their faithfulness, or faithlessness, and he talks about even the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So this is quoted in the New Testament, but in the middle of all this, um, he also points to this thing, and I, it's kind of weird to say, but when it comes to uh, God's attributes, which one is the greatest? Well, they're all the greatest. When it comes to what does God specialize in? Well, he kind of specializes in everything. I don't think that God is like better at one thing and he's working on this skill set and he's like, he's leveling up. God doesn't level up. He's, he's completely leveled up. But it, dare I say that mercy, grace, and restoration are especially what God specializes in. And I know that's not theologically accurate, but when it comes to Dave Reisinger, A Trophy of Grace, Joel really hits on God's, uh, the, the centerpiece of who God is to us, and that is gracious and merciful. And so we get into this and let's look at what these, uh, the people of God were going through, and let's relate it to our life. Because this is a prophetic book, but it also points to the spiritual faith lessons that you and I should learn and and glean from um, as we think of this passage through the context of our own journey. So this is the word of the Lord, Joel 1, 1 through 4. This is the word of the Lord uh, that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. Hear, O elders, and give ear all who dwell in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your fathers. Tell your children, tell it to your children and let your children tell tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. What the devouring locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust has left, the young locust has eaten. What the young locust has left, the destroying locust has eaten. Now what are these locusts? This, This is actually a plague that did hit Israel and there's some military language about armies coming in. But I don't know if you saw this very recently. Uh, There was this massive harvest of locusts. They would blacken the sky and they come in. Um, They were in, I think, Africa. They actually got into Las Vegas. And uh, I remember watching this video and like people are covered in locusts going into casinos and guy steps out of his car and it's like up to his knees in locusts. It was pretty disgusting actually. But in, in a city, it's disgusting. But in a agricultural like community or era, it's devastating. Literally, this is how you survive. It's, it's your crop. It's your livelihood. It's your income. It's everything. And these locusts had come in and God actually sent them as a way to wake his rebellious people up. And so what does this look like? In our lives? What are the locust years? And if you notice, it was a succession of them. So not, not only did one wave come in and, and they ate the, the fruit of the land, but there was another wave that came in. And it got so bad that they were actually getting into the, the barns and, and the silos, if you will, and they were eating the seed that would be planted in the next year, in the following year. So this was a, this was a devastating loss that wasn't just a one-year thing, it, it, it would impact their children, their children and their children's children possibly if, it didn't, if they didn't turn to repentance. And so this is one of those things that represents in our life years of fruitlessness. I, I don't know if you've had some locust years, not because of the enemy, oh yeah, he tempts us, but I know for me, I've had some fruitless years. Years that I labored and I worked hard And I put my hand to the plow, I just put my hand to the wrong plow. And at the end of the day, all the work, all the sweat, all the toil, you know, it it just produced nothing. Or it produced something and it was gone immediately. You know, it's kinda like when those years or those seasons where we feel like God has called us according to his word to do one thing, and we sense like, yeah, I know that this is the right thing, but you get like this spiritual gold fever. And what's gold fever like? Man, I gotta head west. I gotta take this direction because uh, there's the promise that I might strike it rich with fulfillment or I might strike it rich relationally or I might strike it rich with my status or my ego or my name or my, my kingdom will grow if I just find the right mountain and I take my pick and I hack away and I find that vein of gold, whatever that vein of gold is, it could be your own pleasures. It could be your own agenda, your own future. And, 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 and while God is saying, hey, I need you east, we, we end up in years of locust because we head west. And after swinging for days and months and years and, and maybe finding a flake of gold or some fool's gold, we fall to the ground exhausted with our hands bleeding. And we say all of these years are lost. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but that's what these locust years would be. It would be years of wandering aimlessly. You don't have a pick in your hand. You don't have a mission. There's no mountain you're hacking at. You don't even know what to do. It's kind of like walking in circles trying to just figure out what should I put my hand to? And then you look at your watch and you look at your calendar and you're like, snap, three years have gone by. Five, ten years have gone by and I haven't applied myself to anything except Netflix. I haven't applied myself to any, and this isn't to condemn you, but these are years that one day you wake up and you regret and you say, wow, the, the locusts that came in have eaten all of these years. Can I get them back? And we're gonna get to the hopeful part here in a minute. Uh, but here's verse 12 talks about like, how you would feel. It's a great picture of like, how does it look and how does it feel when the years of locusts have come through your life. It says, the grapevine the, the grape is dried up, and the fig tree is withered, the pomegranate, palm and apples. all the trees of the orchard are withered. surely the joy of mankind has dried up. Now I know there's prophetic, for all the Bible uh, the theologians and, and the Bible nerds out there, there, there's prophetic wording here that talks about Israel and, and the future and the past, but also the faith lesson here is. Have you ever come to a place where you're like, man, you look at your life, and it just looks withered? You, you, you look inside your heart, and you're like, ugh, empty, fruitless, dry, and surely, the joy that I could have had, should have had, and once had, it, it's not there anymore. And this is where God shows off. You know, he doesn't, he's not a God that loves spanking us. He doesn't you know that God actually does not like to discipline us, but you know that he only disciplines us because he loves us. And and, and in a sign that you're a son or a daughter, a child of God, one of the proofs that you belong to God is that he chastens you. He chastens those who are his. And so he's chastening Israel here and he chastens us. But like when I had kids, I didn't say, hey, Connie, you know what? I'm kind of liking the single life. We got to go to the Bahamas and Hawaii and we get to go out to eat and we can stay up late and you know, we don't have to tuck anybody in. We ain't changing diapers. Um, but I actually would like to have kids and I want to have kids so I can spank them. That's my main goal. I'd love to have some kids so I can ground them. Um, wouldn't it be awesome to have an Isaiah, a Caleb and an Abby so we can boss them around and we can make their lives miserable? I honestly, obviously, hopefully, if you're a parent that thinks that way, please get some counseling. But God, sometimes we put that on God. Like, why'd you bring me into this world? Why are you letting this happen to me? You must take pleasure. Yeah, I know I messed up, but you know we think that God's out there to punish us. He's not. But here's what he does when we have forfeited good things in our life. When we have taken that which he put in our hands and we've surrendered it, look at the beautiful response he has. Joel 2, 12 through 14. Yet even now, declares the Lord. Check this out. He's saying, yet in the midst of your ruin, your rebellion, your hard-heartedness, your stiff-neckedness, if that's even a word, right? In the midst of you turning and going west when I asked you to go east, in the midst of you wasting the things that I gave you, in the midst of your heartache, your agony, your lack of joy, your feeling of emptiness, that, that, that residual thread of dissatisfaction, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. You know what he says here? I'm setting you up, even in the midst of it, turn to me now, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you the power of my grace. But notice how he says, return to me. He, didn't, he, he said, return with all your heart. This doesn't mean, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start going to church. I'm going to start going to church a little bit more you know what, babe, we need to return to the Lord. We need to get at least one Sunday a month on the calendar to, to show up. Or, you know, sometimes it's like, yeah, I'm, I, you know, I'm coming back to the Lord. I uh, picked up my Jesus Calling and uh, I'm gonna start reading my Devo. I'm gonna put, before I go to bed every night, I'm gonna give a two minute Devo. I'm not knocking Jesus Calling. I'm just saying that sometimes our return to the Lord is I'm gonna sprinkle a little bit of Jesus salt on my nasty life. This is what Jesus is saying. Return to me with all of your heart, fasting, weeping, and mourning. And what does he say here? He says, So rend your hearts, not your garments, and return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, and he relents from sending disaster. Here's what, this is so beautiful. He says, I want you to rend your heart or rip your heart or, or tear your heart, not your garments. Now, this sounds like violent, but back in this day, when someone was like showing a sign of repentance, they would throw ashes on themselves or sit in sackcloth, you know, wear something really itchy just to like to show that they're entering, uh, they're leaving comfort to show that, they're, that they're, they're mourning over their sin. So, I mean, this is probably a lot of people walking around with like ripped clothing, which would be kind of weird to see. But back then, it was, uh, it, it, it was a sign that like, hey, I, I just repented. Like, I'm getting right with God. I would love to own a clothing store back then. Like, you know, just hang around really religious churches and offer to sew people. You would have made a killing back then. But this is what God is saying. I don't want you to rend your your clothes. Don't give me the outward demonstration of repentance. It's not about um, how, how you look in your act of repentance. I want something internal to turn toward me. And this is what he says here. Who knows? Verse 14, he may turn and relent and even leave a blessing behind. N- not only will God, when we turn to him, not only will God forgive us, but the nature of grace is, I-, I won't just forgive you, but perhaps I'll even leave you more than you had before. Not that we go sin so that we can like somehow level up because grace will deliver a treasure um, in that regard. It's not about... Our, our, our sin and our coming back as some mechanism or transaction to, like, get God's blessing. It's the fact that when we turn to God, he wants to prove that his word is true and that his nature is gracious so much that he somehow, in some way, and I don't get it, he puts extra emphasis and extra blessing on the heart that turns to him. I wonder how many bells ring in heaven every time someone repents because it says, that all of heaven rejoices when one sinner comes to repentance. So think about it. Like like God says, hey, heaven, it's it's time to throw a party. Why? Because someone turned to me with all their heart. And and they've been rending their garments for the last two years, but they finally rend their heart. And it's time to throw a party because repentance is an aroma in heaven that causes rejoicing. And and then he goes, I'm going to skip down to verse 25. And this is the promise, I will restore to you, okay, to you individually, to me, to anyone who would turn to the Lord, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. One version says, I will repay you for the years eaten by locusts. Now, this is huge. Here's why. When it comes to the enemy stealing our stuff, God told David, you go pursue it, you overtake them, and surely you will recover all by God's power. This one, God didn't say, go after the stuff you lost, go pursue it, go overtake it, and you will recover all. He's like, hey, when it comes to stuff you've surrendered, I'm gonna restore it. And you know what we do? I'll say Dave. You know what Dave does? When Dave has done something to surrender or forfeit good things in my life, um, either I feel too discouraged to go pursue it because I feel disqualified and I feel unworthy of going to get those things because I rightfully gave it up and I have no excuse. Um, or I try to repay God. I try to make up, I try to do more for God and I try to restore it through my effort. And if I work really hard, right? So these are things that I've had to work through over the years. But here's the weird thing. God's like, hey, you lost it. And it was your fault, but I'm going to repay you. Think about how crazy scandalous this is. Wait a minute, God, I owe you. I need to repay you for what I lost. Like, I should repay you. I'm the one who rebelled against you. God's like, that's not how grace works. I'm not going to let you brag. I'm going to show you that my goodness is so much greater than your ability to perform. That I will repay you for your sin and your wasted years? What kind of God is that? That's amazing, that's incredible that we have a God who pulls out his spiritual wallet and he starts to pay us back for all the things that offended his heart and all the things that we lost and all the things that even hurt other people. When we turn our hearts to him, the same way the prodigal son didn't come home after losing his inheritance and turning in rebellion and shaming his family he didn't come back and the father says, okay, start in the garage, sweep the barn, work your way up to the kitchen, then you can you know, carry my golf bags and one day you might be called son. He immediately hits him with a robe, kills the fatted calf, puts the ring on his finger and he makes him or puts him back into a position of royalty and sonship immediately. Why? Because God doesn't want us to A, think that it's by our strength that we've been restored. It's by His grace when we turn to Him. Now, this is so cool. Uh, a few more thoughts here. Uh, sometimes when you think of things that can be restored, you can restore money. You can restore creativity. You can restore health. You can restore influence. The one thing you cannot restore is time. Now, how then could God said, I'll I restore years? You can't get years back. You can't get time back. We're stuck in this deal, like the, the clock is ticking. And what happened just three minutes ago in my sermon, I can't take back unless I cut the tape and re refilm it, which may or may not have happened earlier in this video. So, uh, but you can't get time back. Yet God says, no, I will. I'll restore the years that the enemy has taken. I thought about this and I sat on it. And I'm like, when does that ever happen to the Bible? Like, I can think of God extending time. Like, here's Hezekiah, and he's like, God, I don't want to die. God says, all right, I'll extend you 15 years here. I can think of God pausing time. Joshua's fighting, and he's in a battle. The sun is going down. He needs a little bit more daylight, right? If you've ever been in construction, you look at the sun, and you're like, oh, snap, man, let's get, let's get busy, especially if it's outside. Like, we got to get this done. The sun's going down. We, we don't have light. God actually pauses, like holds the sun still. So God's pause time. But how in the world do you Re- re- repay time or restore time, years lost. This is the miracle of God, and this is where you and I need to just say, thank you, Jesus. You know, it's not just the time, it's the fruit lost in the time. You know, it's this—it's the uh, relationship that feels like it's 10 years gone, and in a moment of repentance and reconciliation, God can take what What would have taken 10 years, and He can restore it in a matter of a week or a month or a day. Like, God, I've seen God do this in my finances. Like, literally, what would take me a year to make, like hourly, and praying and seeking the Lord, He's done in a matter of a week, a month. And it just came out of nowhere. It's God restoring and doing ridiculous, miraculous math. He can restore the joy. You might have been a season of depression and heaviness. And you feel like all these years are wasted. And you've gone, like instead of the straight path, you've taken this detour. But God knows the shortcut. He has this special little path. I've hiked mountains before. And we can skip from one trail to the to, to, and get right back on the same path in an instant. When God knows the map. And so I don't know where you're at, but I want you to hear the rest of this in chapter uh, two, verse 26, you will have plenty until you're satisfied. You will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. My people will never again be put to shame. This is cool because not only will I restore the years and restore the lost fruit, but I will do it in a way that you're not walking with shame because there's shame that comes when we've lost it then you will know that I am present in Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is no other. My people will never again be put to shame. I think of the woman in Luke chapter seven, this notorious woman, and I'll just read it, Luke seven. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. So Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and sat at the table. A sinful woman in the town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind Jesus at his feet, crying. She began to wash his feet with her tears and dried them with her hair, kissing them many times and rubbing them with perfume. The Pharisee who asked Jesus to come to his house saw this. He thought to himself, if Jesus were a prophet, he would know that this woman touching him is a sinner." I want you to notice something because this is a great picture of how God restores the years that the locusts have eaten. Here's a a woman who had surely lured many men into the death trap of of lust. There's a few things mentioned here and I didn't see this until yesterday um, or I didn't put it together this way but it mentions her perfume. It mentions those eyes that she cried with. It mentions her hair. And then it says she kissed Jesus' feet with her lips. And I thought about this like, wow, how powerful it is. Here's a woman that's literally surrendering the tools of her transgression and she's using them as worship and she's offering these tools of transgression to the only one who could transform her life. That hair, right, that weave, those extensions she used to try and catch a man's eye, that perfume she used to lure him in, the, those lips that were, you know, honey coated with gloss or painted red, and those eyes that you, know, tried to lock uh, with, with a man and lure him in. How many neighborhoods did this woman walk through? And now how many did she have to avoid lest somebody shout from a window, "You home wrecker. How many people and places did she have to dodge? And yet Jesus Christ, brings her, this woman at the bottom of society, how long would it take her to regain her reputation that she lost? How many marriages literally are ended and will never get back together because this woman walked and lived her life with an emptiness that needed to be fulfilled and thought it would only be fulfilled in the arms of a man she didn't know that had a ring on. And yet, here's Jesus and what would have taken two lifetimes to restore her dignity in a moment Jesus sits this notorious woman at his table. She goes from the bottom to the top. She goes from the back of the line in society to the very front of the line. And she sits at the most powerful, most prestigious table in all the universe, that which the Lord hosts himself. And that's how the Lord restores years that are lost. Oh, and there's no shame with it. There's no shame with it. This man looked at her shamefully, but when God has your back, and God accepts you, she had more status in this room, at his feet, looking maybe like a fool in the eyes of the world. She had more status than this prestigious Pharisee did. That is God restoring the years that the enemy has eaten or taken. And I love this quote, those who have wept the deepest will sing the loudest. I promise you this, when you recognize the pit and you recognize the loss And you turn your heart to the Lord and You seek him with everything and you recognize that God is the God who brings all things together for the good You will find a joy and this is weird that maybe you didn't even have before you lost it all This is the way the kingdom works. This is not a license to sin But those who've been forgiven much loveth much when you recognize that it's only him and it has to be a miracle. There's actually a love produced in you and it'll make you wanna cling to the one who restored it all so that you don't lose it again. And may you and I both understand that because it's the prodigal son he restores to a place of sonship. It's the countless people Jesus healed physically. It's the demoniac, the Gadarene, who's restored to his right mind. It's the women in the scriptures that were restored to a place of dignity and value, although in the eyes of society, they were trash. And yet God says, you're treasure. It's the restoration of Peter's leadership after he runs away like a coward. He's then filled with charisma. He's filled with the Christ and the spirit, and he's restored to leadership. And it's the restoration of the darkened, cold soul of King David that we talked about last week, Who commits murder and adultery and then in Psalm 51 finds himself in the arms of grace when he should have been punished by death and yet God says it's not my pleasure to punish people it's my pleasure to show grace and turn from punishment but will you extend your hand because behold I make all things new so would you pray with me father we ask right now in the name of Jesus that we would sense your grace even in this moment As we close this message and we would sense a call to rend our hearts not our garments that we would sense a call to put down the axe and start swinging at a mountain hoping we'll find gold because we won't not the kind of gold that satisfies deeply god we would stop aimlessly wandering and that we would just find ourselves following your path because the steps of the righteous are ordered by the lord lord god i pray that we would surrender our agenda and find a place at the greatest, most prestigious table in all the universe, that which Jesus himself hosts. And he puts only those who love him there. May we love you with all of our hearts because you loved us first, in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thank you for tuning in today. If this word's gonna be an encouragement you feel to somebody else, then pass it along. If you want more info on Redeem Church, go to redeem.church. Thank you, God bless, have a great week.